Morning once again. Happy Sabbath. Beautiful day. I started preaching in Fremont. The sun was shining in my eyes. I got in the parking lot and it was raining. Maybe I'm a carrier. Our brothers and sisters at Fremont wish you all well. They asked me to make an announcement. Uh, next Sabbath at 1.30 p.m., they're going to show a movie at the Fremont Church. It's called Is Genesis History? Movies about creation brings forth five or six PhDs in archaeology and in geology and history, and they're witnesses of how everything they learned was not true. And they're going to share why it's not true. And so I found it very interesting. I think I might try to carve out some time myself. And they asked me to share. I'll put that on the Facebook page. And so if you can, join them next Sabbath afternoon. I also wanted to mention, uh, Elder Griffin mentioned uh, materials in his budget breakdown. We have given out roughly 21,000 pieces of literature so far this year. The goal is 25,000. We're well on pace. Uh, but the goal will be bigger next year. And without everybody's heartfelt giving, we can't give that material out. So I appreciated his call for that. If everybody gave one piece of literature a day in this church, and we average 100 people coming to church, it's 36,500 pieces of literature. It's one a day. It's not that hard to do, is it? It shouldn't be. So, do not be surprised if that doesn't become the goal next year for personal ministries. Before we open the word of God, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Merciful Father, Lord, once again, we thank you for your grace, your love, and your forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Bible, the gift of this word, the gift of your truth. And Lord, we thank you for the foundation for which you've given us to build our faith upon. And now we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit to open these words, to give us the truth and draw us near to you so we can build upon that faith. And Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The self-improvement market in the United States in 2016 was worth $9.9 billion. It is forecast to grow 5.6% averagely on a yearly gain from 2016 to 2022, when the market will be worth $13.2 billion. Self-help. If you do an internet search on self-help books, prepare to have a long day. I did that. <laughs> Preparation for this sermon. Thousands of pages, millions of resources. Did you know that last year alone there was 100,000 new self-help books published in one year? 100,000. Clearly everyone is looking to get better, amen? Looking to grow. We have stepped plans galore. You see the title of my sermon, The Seven-Step Plan, there's all kinds of plans, the one-step plan, the three-step plan, the 12-step plan. Most of them are not that good. I'm not saying that about all of them. Some of them may have helped some of you, some may have not. The vast majority of them lack one common critical factor, God. So friends, I'm here to tell you, stop donating to the $10 billion industry and open your Bible. That's the best self-help book ever published, ever will be published. If you asked a younger person, 
how old they are. How often would you hear the answer, I'm nine, going on 10, soon to be 11? Or what, and substitute whatever age you want in there. Young people are in a hurry to grow up, aren't they? Until they get to be adults. And then they wonder why they were in such a hurry. <laughs> but most Christians want to go in the Lord too, amen? Especially when they're new in the faith. When you come to the faith, you want, okay, what's next? Sadly, many Christians, and, and that's the end of the journey. I got baptized. I got my ticket punched. I'm good to go. I get to kick my feet up in, this, in the pew. Feed me. Often as time goes on, the enthusiasm wanes, fades. Our desire to grow begins to fade. But when you first come to Christ, you have that euphoric experience. Amen? You guys know my witness. I'm a converted Adventist. You have that spiritual high. What next? What's next? We often settle into a routine and we become spiritually complacent. I once read a story about an old farmer who described his Christian experience. He said, well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm well established. One spring, he was hauling a wagon full of wood and the wagon sunk in the mud up to the axles. As he sat there viewing his situation, his neighbor wandered by, a neighbor who was very familiar with his testimony. He called out, he says, hello, brother. I see you're not making much progress, but you must be content because you're well-established. It was a very polite way of saying, you're stuck. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you, if you're stuck spiritually, God wants you to grow. Even if you've been a Christian for many years, God wants us all to grow, amen? In fact, until we are like Jesus Christ, which will not happen until he comes, we all have room to grow. In our study this morning, the Apostle Peter is going to give us some wise counsel about growing in godliness. As we will learn, we will not grow without deliberate discipline and effort. Now, first off, I want you to reflect on who's giving us counsel. The Apostle Peter. A man known in the Gospels for his flaws, for his faults, for his impetuosity. Friends, the Gospels lay out his entire life, the warts, the good, the bad, the ugly. But they also reveal the greatness that Peter became. Here, this flawed, impetuous man sets forth a deliberate, disciplined approach to spiritual growth. I want you to think about the irony of that. Friends, if Peter, the impetuous fisherman, could become a disciplined, godly man, then any one of us can do the same, amen? Peter's telling us, because God has imparted new life and spiritual riches to us in Christ, we must be diligent to grow in godliness. That's a summary of the scripture we're going to study today. Peter's going to tell us, because of everything God has done in our lives, because everything he has done for each one of us, we have a responsibility, an expectation from God to grow. It kind of shoots down the whole, I got baptized, I'm good to go theory, doesn't it? 
So if we want to understand the context in which Peter was operating in, we'll look at what was going on in the church at that time and will help us to understand his counsel. And I want to start off with a story. I'm sure some of you have heard this story. It's called The Atheistic Philosophy Professor. One day in class he asked, Has anyone seen God? The students all shook their heads, No. He says, Has anyone touched God? Once again, they shook their heads, no. He says, has, is there any direct evidence that God exists? Of course, I would have had a much different answer, but they shook their heads, no. He says, therefore, God must not exist. Then one of his students stood up, said, has anyone seen the professor's brain? Is there any direct evidence that the professor's brain exists. Has anyone touched the professor's brain? Therefore, the professor's brain must not exist. Now, it's a cute story, but there's a reason for this story. Sloppy thinking leads to sloppy conclusions. Amen? The student in this story actually had to answer his professor's sloppy thinking. And this is the context we find Peter in. Sloppy thinking had come into the early church. We often think that with this early church had Jesus, they had the apostles, they had all this direct life testimony. It was this happy, pure thing. No. The apostolic church faced many of the same challenges we do today. They just didn't have the internet to make it go on fire. But friends, they faced the same challenges we did. So here's Peter facing that dilemma. There's teachers going around saying that personal morality didn't matter. They're basically saying, party all you want, indulge all of your impulses, because the body is unimportant. All that really matters is some mystical spiritual enlightenment. That was being taught in the apostolic church. And those stories about Jesus, oh, they're just myths, legends. They didn't really happen. We didn't see them. Now, friends, we know this runs counter to biblical teaching. And that was the very reason Peter writes this second epistle, this letter, was to combat false teaching in the church. It was also written to strengthen and lift up faithful believers in the church who were starting to get deceived and starting to weaken, starting to shake. Sound familiar? Those faithful church members were disturbed and they were shaken by these false teachers. So Peter encourages them. He says, don't listen to them. They're selling you a bill of goods. They're selling you a line. Listen to me. You know, friends, if that was the end of the discussion, that would be enough, amen? But Peter was one step stronger, wasn't he? He says, listen to me. I was there. I saw it. I lived it. And you're seeing in me the result. It's a powerful testimony, amen? And you say, well, I'm not Peter, I'm not an apostle. But friends, every one of you had the same powerful testimony of your conversion, of your giving your life to Christ. It's unique. It's personal. Your testimony. That's what Peter's telling them. I was there. Listen to me. 
Now, he does this by restating the basic story of the gospel. Turn to me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. Actually, I'll read 2. I'm going to start 2, read 2, 3, 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Three verses. Peter just told the entire gospel story. He summed up the entire gospel in three verses. We should challenge Paul to do that, right? Peter's telling us God in his love has promised that he will deliver from us or deliver us from the corruption of sin and will enable us to have an eternal relationship with him. Now think about that. He says, I have rescued you from this terrible condition. But the miracle doesn't stop there. Now I'm going to enable you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you everything you need to not only be victorious, but to live with me in heaven forever. I love the statement, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. He's basically saying, I took you out of that. You were lost. I lifted you up. And through your faith in Jesus, you must now spiritually grow, conforming our nature and to practice his. He says, it's not enough that now you've accepted me, that you've expressed faith in me. He says, now we're going to get to work. Now I need you to do something. I've done all the heavy lifting. And I will continue to be there to do the heavy lifting, God tells him. Tells us. We're being told we must put to use the divine nature that we now possess. I have given you Christ. You have taken on Christ. We must recognize that he's given us all the resources we need to grow. In fact, Peter says, that's all you really need for spiritual fulfillment. Everything else is icing on the cake. But there were other teachers out there in the church. Sound familiar? There's other teachers out there, isn't there? And their stories sound very good. We hear their messages everywhere, even within our church. Many of them have television shows, radio shows, churches filled with thousands. And they're hearing these messages. As I said, friends, it's not new. Peter was encountering the same problem in the apostolic church. You say, well, that's okay, Dan. I don't listen to that. I don't hear that. But many of our brothers and sisters do. They're bombarded with it. And then they start to think, well, they can't all be bad. Can they? They start to question. They start to wonder. And they hear enough good stuff to start to listen a little more. There's a Christian radio talk radio in our very area. has very good stuff on it. It has some very scary stuff on it. 
So they start to ask themselves, well, they can't all be bad. Maybe, just maybe, I'll get that new car. Maybe, just maybe, I'll get that new house. Maybe, my lottery number will come up. And then, I'll be happy. We laugh and we shake our heads, friends. I heard on the radio yesterday, 86,000 lottery tickets sold per hour just in the state of Michigan. Per hour. Tell me there's not false teachers in the world. Peter gives us a lesson, multiple lessons. First, he says, to grow in godliness, we must trust in Jesus Christ and his gracious promises. Turn me back to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read today's scripture reading. Verse 5 through 7. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Notice Peter begins with, but also for this very reason. He's taking us back to verses 2, 3, and 4, the gospel summary he gave us. He says, you believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and God, and he has granted you everything you need for life and salvation. He says, but for this very reason, in other words, he's not done. You need your faith to grow. So in this passage, Peter assumes we already have faith. The people he's talking to already have faith, amen? He's saying, thus, here in this point, our spiritual lives must begin. I want to ask you a question, and I want to keep you to keep this question pinned in the back of your mind because I'm going to come back to it. Do any of you ever wonder why people just don't flock to Christ in droves? Come on, I, I do. Friends, he offers complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift to all who will believe. Who can offer a better deal than that? No one. Why aren't people lined up at the door of our churches all over the world asking, what must I do to get saved? Remember that questions. But the Apostle Paul gives us the answer. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says they're lost. They can't know, because they're lost. But friends, there's a much worse state that he's speaking to. They don't know they're lost. If, if you know the truth and you reject it, it's much different than not knowing. Amen? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that before God imparted new life to us, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So we were lost and we didn't know we were lost. If you've trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord, 
It was not because of your keen insight or brilliant powers of logic. You didn't will it to happen. It wasn't because you were so smart that one day you intellectually decided or came to the conclusion that Christ is the answer. No. In Acts chapter 16, we're told it was because God mercifully opened your blind eyes to see. You didn't do it. He did it. In fact, we're more likely to reject him because of our sinful natures on our own. Out of his mercy and grace, he opened our eyes. Mrs. White in the Spirit of Prophecy says, a pure, noble character, with all its grand possibilities, has been provided for every human being. It doesn't say every Adventist. But there are many who have not an earnest longing for such a character. They are not willing to part with the evil that they may have the good. They neglect to grasp the blessings that would place them in harmony with God. And friends, this is the saddest sentence of all. They cannot grow. They cannot grow. Peter and Mrs. White's telling us you cannot begin to grow as a Christian until you have received the new life that Christ has offered. It is the new life that Christ has offered that gives us the motivation and the power to change and grow spiritually. The moment you trust in God, he graciously gives you the key to what Paul called in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I preached about this in a previous sermon. Those are the riches that supply us with everything we need for life and godliness. Now in this list of virtues that Peter mentions in 2 Peter chapter 1, you will hear some theologians mention eight virtues. You'll, but you say, Dan, you've got a seven-step plan. Well, first of all, it's not Dan's seven-step plan. It's not eight. That's because Peter does not tell us to supply faith in this council, as he does with other things on the list. He says, add to your faith. He assumes faith is the foundation on which the other virtues rest and from which they grow. He says you cannot grow in these virtues until you already have faith. Faith is the building block, the foundation. He tells us in verse 1 that we receive faith in Christ through the righteousness of God. But the other qualities are fruit of our faith. So to grow in godliness, we must first trust in Jesus Christ and his gracious promises. Faith is the essential foundation for growing in godliness. Next to grow in godliness, we must have the right motivation. What's the reason why we want to grow? That's what motivation is, right? Why? Why do we do it? Friends, having the right motivation in the Christian life is essential. It's also easy to have the wrong motivation, isn't it? If you want to grow as a Christian so everyone will think, my, what a great Christian he is. Friends, that's pride. And that's the wrong motivation. Or maybe you want to grow as a Christian so you'll be successful in your family life or your business. And you say, well, you know, that's better than pride. But friends, it's still self-centeredness. You're thinking, still thinking about me. Now, I'm not here to say that it's not right to have a desire for God's blessings in our family and in our lives and our careers. But why do we have that desire? What's our motivation? 
It should be, God, I want your blessing so that my life will bring glory to your name. You set your love on me, saved me when I was lost to sin. You called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. Now, Lord, I want to grow in godliness so my life proclaims your glory. The motivation. Why are you doing the things that you do? Is it for your name to be exalted, or is it for God? Friend, God himself gave us his own example of grace when he, got, when he sacrificed his own son. He showed us the right motivation that we should have for applying diligence and to grow spiritually. He gave something he didn't have to give because he loved us so much. So much. The Apostle Paul tells us that God's grace was his motivation for service. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans 12. He says, the very reason I want to serve is because of God's grace, because of his mercy. He uses the same pattern in Ephesians. In the first three chapters, he talks about the spiritual riches that God has graciously given to us through Christ. And then in the last three chapters, he talks about how he's going to live and how we should live as a result of that grace. He says, this is what he did for me and us. And this is what we need to do now. Peter's saying to grow in godliness, it will require some diligence, some hard work, but that we must stay focused on the truth that God has imparted new life to us and that he has given us everything we need. Friends, that's the right motivation. Also to grow in godliness, we must have diligence. In fact, turn with me back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. The Greek word used here is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. It means to bring in besides. Peter's saying, God has given you his life and all of his promises. Now you bring in something. You bring in diligence so that you may grow. He says, I have expectations of you. Peter saying, make every effort eagerly to supply these qualities in your spiritual growth. Friends, Scripture talks often about struggle. Amen? Hard work, effort. And of course, we struggle and work according to God's power in us, but we still must struggle and work. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about as, as working as a result of God's grace. Paul worked hard. He says, because of God's grace, I worked this hard, and I'm going to work harder. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working power, which works in me mightily. If you're familiar with Colossians chapter 1, it closes with him rejoicing in his sufferings. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for Christ. And then he ends with that. He says, to this end I labor. I work because of what he did for me, is what Paul's saying. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about striving against sin. Throughout the New Testament, we see the analogy of warfare or fighting 
to picture the Christian life. Friends, I didn't just cherry pick this out of the New Testament, one little scripture. The symbolism of warfare, battle, is throughout the gospel. Friends, fighting is not effortless. We must exert ourselves even to the point of exhaustion. Peter builds on his reader's faith by offering them a challenge. He says, after calling calling us to build on our faith, he calls us to one step further. Turn with me to verse 10. He He calls us to all those virtues. And then in verse 10 he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. He says, I've called you to diligence back in verse 5. And here's what you need to be diligent in. And then he comes back and says, now that you've been diligent and worked, work some more. Work harder. Peter knows we cannot be successful. We cannot build faith without practicing it. Friends, athletes train their bodies. We should train our hearts. We should train our hearts through prayer and application of Scripture in our lives. I ask you to reflect. Are you applying all diligence to grow in Christ? Do you give it mental effort? Do you make time to grow spiritually? Do you wrestle with the areas where you need to grow? Do you even have a plan to get there? If you don't have a plan, I'm giving you one today. If you're on spiritual autopilot, you are not applying diligence. You will not grow spiritually if you do not work at it. So what does Christian growth look like? That brings us to the heart of our discussion today. That seven-step plan. Remember, Peter said that faith is the foundation. And to faith we must add virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Why did Peter pick these qualities? Paul lists nine qualities in the fruits. Amen? Galatians chapter 5. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now notice, four of those qualities are also in in Peter's list. So why did Peter choose a different list? I believe he chose them because... It was the opposite of the evil that he was facing in the church at that time, the teachers. And in fact, if you continue to read in 2 Peter in chapter 2, you'll see him start to undermine or attack those false teachers. Those false teachers were not Christ-like. They claimed to have knowledge, but they did not know God. They lacked self-control, and they indulged in sins of the flesh. They were not persevering in godliness. They had gone astray. Rather than demonstrating true brotherly kindness and love, they were actually exploiting people in the church. They were exploiting brothers and sisters in Christ. So Peter's using a logical flow in this seven-step plan. Faith is the bedrock. All things are built upon it. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, without faith, you are not a Christian. That might sound really harsh, but that's what the Bible teaches. Without faith, you are not even a Christian. Virtue or morality is necessary next because without that, we we cannot have a clear conscience. If we live in known disobedience to God, he will not reveal more spiritual truth to us. Thus, this virtue must precede knowledge. 
Knowledge follows closely because we must know the Word of God to inform our conscience and guide us in all of our thinking and behavior. After knowledge, self-control comes next. Knowing the truth does not help if you don't exercise the truth. And in fact, it does much greater damage to the kingdom of God if you know the truth, speak the truth, but don't live the truth. That damages God's witness. Self-control on a few occasions will not help if we yield and ruin our testimony. Thus, perseverance is required when trials and temptations come. And as we persevere, we develop godliness, which refers to a living reverence of God in every situation of our lives. But friends, I'm here to tell you that true godliness is not just a private matter between the individual and God. We hear that a lot. Me and God are good. It's me and God. Me and God. We're good. And that's important. It's bigger than that. In fact, that's why the next step is brotherly kindness and self-sacrificing love. It can't be just you and God. You need God, but then you need to manifest God's character in the world to truly transform to be like God. You can speak the words and say, I love my brother, but if you're not loving your brother... You have not truly become like God, and you had stopped growing spiritually. Friends, as you can see, God is a God of order and logic. Thus, he gives us this in a logical order. Peter says, to your faith, add virtue. In fact, this is the same word he used in verse 3 when he refers to the moral perfections of Jesus. This word is used once again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 when he refers to the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is using this two verses earlier to refer to Christ. So he's telling us that virtue means to be like Christ. We are to grow in the character of Christ. Just as he always obeyed the Father and lived to glorify him, so should we. Next to virtue, we're to add knowledge. Peter is referring to practical wisdom that is gained through the exercise of moral virtue. By exercising this moral virtue, we will gain knowledge. But we gain that knowledge of God through his word, through truth. His word will tell us how to think, how to speak, and how to behave in every possible situation. Friends, stop buying self-help books. The answer to everything you face is in the Bible. Everything. As we put this knowledge into use, it helps us to grow to know Christ better. Gospel Workers, page 249. If God's word were studied as it should be, that's a loaded statement right off the bat, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that are rarely seen in these times. She says that's what we have the opportunity to attain but we're not doing our part is basically what Mrs. White's saying. Next to knowledge, she's, uh, Peter says add self-control. This is the same item on the final list in Galatians chapter 5. God works it in us as we walk in the Spirit, but we must also work to practice it ourselves. Paul uses the word in reference to an athlete. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about how to win the race, and he uses self-control as a key to winning the race. 
He also mentions this in Titus chapter 1 as a necessary qualification for elders. Self-control. By definition, self-control means that you must go against your impulses or your feelings in order to attain a higher goal. An athlete must say no to junk food in order to keep in shape. We know that, right? In fact, here's a little tidbit for you. Elite athletes today are embracing the health message, the health principles of our church that we championed over 100 years ago. In fact, they're surpassing our church's walk in the health message, and that should break every one of our hearts. It's great that they're doing it. Why aren't we leading the way? That's a whole other sermon. It's a restraining of our desires and our passions to come into line with Scripture. Self-control applies to controlling all desires, including greed, sex, food, emotions, and most of all, the use of our time. Next, Peter says to self-control, we must add perseverance. Perseverance can be defined as the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. I love that word, unswerved. That means perseverance means you're not going to get knocked off course no matter what. This concept in the Bible is often referred to in the face of suffering. Perseverance means we will keep following Christ even when it results in persecution, hardship, or even death. That's perseverance. Next, Peter says to perseverance, we must add godliness. Godliness refers to a practical awareness of God in every aspect of our lives. It refers to an awe in the presence of God and the obedience that befits that reverence. Now, friends, often we think of godliness as being like God, appearing like God. Godliness is bigger than that. Godliness is an attitude. It's a way of life. It's an awareness and an appreciation of the very presence of God around us. It is the attitude which gives God the place he ought to occupy in our lives and in thought and in our devotions. Godliness is placing God above all else. 24-7. Next to godliness, Peter says, add brotherly kindness. This is the Greek word Philadelphia. No, they didn't invent the city of brotherly love. It's a biblical concept. Brotherly kindness is the feeling of kindness or mutual understanding and care that should exist amongst family members. It should apply to how we are to treat every human being since we are all members of the human family. Say, well, it's easy to love my family. I got to. But those people, I got to love them like my family? The Apostle Paul tells us we must accept all whom Christ has accepted, not just those we like. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's saying we must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 6, he says we must do good to all. 
especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Our brothers and sisters in the church. Friends, if we can't show brotherly kindness to brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we grow to be like Christ and care for those who have yet to find Christ? If the non-Christian world sees us treating each other poorly within the walls of the church, why would they want to learn about Christianity? Why would they want to come through the doors? Remember my earlier questions I asked you to remember. Do you ever wonder why people don't just flock to Christ by draws? Why aren't they lined up at the doors? Is it so easy for us to simply dismiss people as being ignorant or rebellious? Oh, they're stupid. They don't know. Or they know and they don't care. They're rebellious. When in fact, could it really be possible that the church itself could be pushing people away from Christ? Friends, I pray that we all reflect on this and pray that we are not causing harm to Christ's mission and undermining his sacrifice. And finally, to brotherly kindness, add love. Now we know the Greek word agape, we heard many sermons, many Bible studies. Agape is much more than the English word of love. It is a self-sacrificing commitment to seek the highest good of the one loved. Peter exhorts us to apply all diligence to supply brotherly kindness and love. So he's saying that these qualities are not spontaneous. He's acknowledging we must work at them. In fact, because of our natures, it's not our first inclination. I said, well, Dan, that sounds good, but how am I going to practice that? Well, friends, we can practice that every week right here every Sabbath in this church. Instead of keeping to yourself, look for others who may be new or alone and go out of your way to make them feel welcome. If the person is hurting, pray with them. If they seem lonely, arrange to get together later in the week. How much time do we spend in fellowship with each other outside of Sabbath? Friends, Peter's plan, or better yet, God's plan, begins with faith and ends with love. Steps to Christ, chapter 8. When Christ abides in the heart, the whole nature is transformed. Christ's spirit, his love, softens the heart, subdues the soul, and raises the thoughts and desires towards God in heaven. We must trust in God. We must allow him to impart his power and grace. And then, in turn, he will enable us, he will empower us to grow into what he has always intended us to be, like him. I see many of your faces. I'm sure some of you may be thinking, man, Dan, that's a great message for new Christians. It's a great message for those new people. But I've been in the church for years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. Some of you maybe even more than that. <laughs> Friends, Peter's counsel is actually directed at that very attitude. Turn me back to 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, where we started. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. If you've got headings in your Bible, notice the heading. Peter, Peter's approaching death. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. 
Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that I shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter says, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you, just as the Lord left. His audience was spiritually mature, or at least they were mature in the faith. So what does Peter say he needs to do? He needs to lift them up, to strengthen them, to remind them. Think about your family gatherings. Invariably, if you're like, you're like mine, the older people start telling stories. About two and three generations ago, friends, I'm blessed. You know I have a grandfather who's still alive, 96. I had another grandfather that was 96. I get to hear all those stories. Friends, they weren't for entertainment. They weren't. They were to give us a sense of identity, a sense of who we are and where we came from. Peter makes the same point that we need to hear these stories over and over. We need to be strengthened by them. It doesn't matter how established in the faith we really are. Peter's saying, well, you need to hear them again and again. That's what the Hebrew people did themselves. Remember Psalm 78, the retelling of God's deliverance of Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 reveals a community of people engaged in telling their story to each other during the daily moments of their lives. Friends, they didn't have Bibles. <laughs> they told each other the stories over and over and over. And they knew them. Friends, the story of God's people reveals a community that comes together constantly to tell the stories of faith and to celebrate God's law. That is what the biblical testimony is. So when false teachers come in saying that Jesus was a myth, or that he was some great ethical teacher but wasn't the son of God. Peter replies, don't listen to them. Listen to me. Remember the stories. That's the answer. Friends, they're not bedtime stories. They're meant to strengthen our witness and our faith and our walk. There will come a time when we're alone. When we're at our weakest point. When the enemy, that's when the enemy will seek us out. That is when you must have built your spiritual growth upon the truth of God. Because you won't have your pastor. You won't have your elder. You won't have mom and dad. It will be you and the enemy. But God will be behind you. And if you stick with God, you will win that battle every time. But in order to trust that God will be there, you have to trust his truth. As I close, friends, spiritual growth is a long process. It's not a quick fix. In fact, once again, Peter is the perfect example for this story, amen? It requires us to practice it consistently and to stick with it over the long haul. We can't just dabble at spiritual growth. If you're not making much spiritual progress, then you're not well established. You're like that farmer stuck in the mud. Such spiritual growth does not come without effort. As I said, and as Peter says, God has provided all we need. 
but we must give all diligence to the process. Any lack of spiritual growth is our fault, not his. The counsel from Peter shows that no matter how advanced we are in the faith, no matter how wise we think we are, we are always in need of hearing the stories again and again. We are always in need of being challenged anew. You say, well, why? Because the false teachers are out there, and they want each one of us. Don't listen to them. Listen to Peter. He will challenge you. He will remind you of the great story of God's redeeming love. Friends, I ask you today, was it clear? I pray that you will follow Peter's seven-step plan to grow spiritual growth so that we strengthen in our faith, strengthen in our witness, and ultimately join each other in heaven. Please join me in singing the closing hymn, number 518, Standing on the Promises.